Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,384. Today on Cars Yeah, I'm celebrating the 23rd annual Ironstone Concours that takes place on September 28th at the beautiful Ironstone Vineyards in Murphys, California. To learn more about this fantastic event, go to ironstoneconcours.org. Leaders really don't motivate people, but what they really do is that they provide an environment in which people feel motivated. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior, is with a car cover. I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. That's right, 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft has been manufacturing premium quality exterior and interior covers for over 50 years with a stellar reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit over 80,000 patterns and growing. They are the only cover I'll put on my vehicles. You can choose from a wide variety of fabrics, styles, colors, and more. From full cover designs for factory to custom-made vehicles, plus convertible top covers, trucks, truck cab coolers, motorcycles, scooters, ATVs, trailers, campers, personal watercraft, and a wide variety of custom features. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, calling in from beautiful Hillsboro, California, Rob Fisher. Hey, Rob, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Sure, I'm Mark. Looking forward to it. All right. Rob Fisher has spent a lifetime devoted to machines that run, or I should say turn fuel into noise, and he loves anything with four wheels, two wheels, or a propeller. Rob is currently the CEO of the up-and-coming San Francisco Auto Museum located in the heart of the city by the bay. Prior to finding his dream job with the museum, Rob spent over 30 years leading global sales organizations at six different startups in Silicon Valley, which took he and his family to London for six years. He spends his free time doing all things automotive as the most recent president of a private vintage car club, collecting post-war cars, and he enjoys vintage racing in his Formula Atlantic. Rob is a supporter of the Ironstone Concours, and he is also the chairman of the Hillsborough Concours d'Elegance, the longest continually running Concours in the world. So Rob, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you before I jump into the questions. Could you take a moment and share a little bit more about your career and a very obvious passion you have for automobiles. Sure, Mark. Happy to. I was actually born and raised on the East Coast, so I'm kind of a bi-coastal guy. Uh, grew up in a little tiny town called Bronxville, New York, and uh, moved out here to California junior year of my high school and uh, have pretty much been in California ever since, other than, as uh, as you mentioned, taking a six-year stint over to to the UK, which was one of the best experiences of my life, but uh, have pretty much always been in sales and sales leadership and technology companies here in the Bay Area. I uh, went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, so had 
definitely divorced myself from the East Coast as related to going to school ever again, and uh, live now here in the Bay Area uh, uh, with my family. Very nice. You see Santa Barbara party. I remember back when I was looking at UC schools, I ended up at UCSD. I remember everybody saying, go to Santa Barbara. That's really cool. They have a lot of fun at that school. And I love surfing, so they were close to the ocean, but uh, ended up staying close to home where I grew up. Sounds like fun. Well, as we continue on this journey of your life, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Show. Rob, I know you love to race and drive, so take the wheel. Thanks, Mark. I think one of my favorite mantras that I really have lived by, at least in the work environment, but it also has worked in in a lot of other tangential areas, is that leaders really don't motivate people. But what they really do is that they provide an environment in which people feel motivated. If you really think about it, you know, you sit here, you've, you've got a group of people and you walk in and you're their leader and they're not feeling too great and things like that. And you know, poor leaders and or people that don't understand people will say, hey, you know, you really need to be motivated. You got to work on motivating yourself. You got to do this. You got to do that. Instead of stepping back and taking ownership for it as their leader and saying, hey, what can I do to better understand the issues and provide an environment in which someone will then feel motivated? Because you can't tell them to be motivated. They have to figure it out for themselves. And your job, and as I've seen it as my job in both leading organizations or working with uh, in nonprofit uh, environments, et cetera, or even with just my kids, the opportunity to allow someone to be in an environment where they're going to feel motivated is really what you, what you can do to separate yourself from others. Absolutely. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. What are a couple of ways, if you think back to the different companies you've worked in that year, what have you done specifically to help people feel like they are motivated? Because I understand that sometimes you see people that have a lot of potential, but you're like, gosh, like get with the action here a little bit. But you can't just tell them to do that. That almost deflates things from them. What are a couple ideas you might share with somebody out there that might be facing this similar challenge? Maybe they're new at leading or they've just been given a management role and they're trying to get their folks as excited about what they're doing uh, as what the leader himself or herself is doing. As you mentioned, it, it, it really is an individual thing. And I think you run a risk sometimes in trying to throw everyone into the same, into the same management style. You, you really have to sit down and spend that quality time with the individuals, particularly if you're a new manager, to sit down and talk to them about what they feel motivates them and take note of it, not, not just to do it from a, you know, just check in the box per perspective. And, and you see that a lot. You know, particularly new leaders say, well, you know, sit down and do one-on-ones with your guys, find out what makes them tick. Uh, but if you don't take that information to heart and then use that to guide how you will interact with the team and how you will also support your team when they're not there amongst other executives or in challenging environments, say, when your boss is trying to put something down onto the organization that you know will, you know, will be detrimental. And if you have the information and you have the justification to push back and say, hey, you know, if you do that, you're going to you're going to really have a negative effect on people. We've got to figure out another way to, to provide this environment where people will stay motivated, but will still be able to get the results that we're trying to achieve. So showing the showing those folks that work with you 
that you're there to support them and protect them from something that might come from a chain of command up higher that doesn't get it or doesn't have the ability or knowledge or time to get to know the rest of the team, especially in big companies. Without without question. And, and it doesn't mean that you don't certainly don't have you know, the core tenets of management, which is accountability and responsibility, but you're going to have a lot better results and a lot more positive support for someone being, being accountable and being responsible if you have that kind of a relationship with them where they feel like they can trust you and that you're there to help them and lead them and that you've demonstrated your ability to help them in ways that they could not help themselves. For sure. Would you share a story with me that instigated the passion that you have for cars? I mentioned in the intro, your bio there, that you've loved cars and things that roll on rubber and even things that have propellers for your whole life. Is there a pivotal moment in your life and you knew that you were indeed going to be a car guy? Well, you know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, when I was thinking about this question, it was, I guess it really kind of got all the way back to my childhood. And I, I loved building models. I really remember the light bulb going on the day that I I got for Christmas. My my parents gave me the the old visible V8 model. I had one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, and I could not put that together quickly enough. And what was fascinating was, um, you know, it was a battery powered one. So you could put up, push a little button and, and it would, it would rotate all the, all the, you know, reciprocal, reciprocating parts within the motor. And, you know, it had little light bulbs that light up to imitate spark plugs. But, you know, you learn simple lessons back then that, that translate into, into lessons now, which was, for example, the, the, the model would not work as well if the parts weren't smooth, if you didn't sand them nice and smooth. You know, if you didn't provide a much less, you know, a much more frictionless environment, you know, things would grind and break and things like that. You know, it's, it, it translates obviously into models today. But the other thing was, and much to my parents' chagrin, I took everything apart when I was a kid. I always wanted to see how it would work. And that was from toys to appliances, whatever I could figure out how to take apart and then usually put back together, but not always. And, not always, yeah. <laughs> and so I <laughs> I think, you know, from that day forward, from those those early days, I really, really was fascinated by how cars worked and, of course, airplanes. And when I was as little as five, remember, always wanting to be a pilot when I when yeah. I grew up and just being fascinated right. by anything mechanical. <laughs> Rob, why doesn't the TV work? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was smart enough to stay away from things that I figured out could kill me. And, I, and to yeah. this day, to this day, I stay away from it, most things electrical. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a skull and crossbones on the circuit board out of the garage in my house. Don't open this. Don't even go in there. It'll kill you. Let's talk about uh, some challenges or maybe even a failure that you faced in your life and career. And I, I'll ask this question because I want you to share how you worked your way through it. So go to a specific situation, kind of take us through that. But more importantly, how did you overcome that thing and what did you learn from it? The uh, As I was thinking through this, the, the probably the biggest challenge I had in my professional career was when I was at actually my uh, my second startup. The company was starting to do pretty well, uh, and we had opened up an office over in London. The office was was struggling for a number of different reasons, and I was heading up sales in the U.S., and I realized that we needed to do something different 
over in the UK. And I knew that we couldn't just, just do it overnight. It was going to be something that needed to be figured out and, and, and resolved. And I knew based upon the role that I was in, I, I couldn't just pick up and go uh, and fix it. So I actually ended up bringing on my former boss, who was global head of sales in the, in the group that I was in at, that was at Oracle, and actually got him to leave Oracle and come over and take over as head of sales for the, the startup I was in. And then I moved myself and my family over to the UK. It was an unbelievable challenge. I'd never lived abroad, but I was really fortunate in the fact that my wife actually had grown up living in the UK. She's American, but but she had been over there with her father and her family uh, who went over to, to do kind of the same thing. And so I came home one day and I said that my wife told her what was going on. I said, what do you think about moving to London? She says, how soon can we go? And I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And so long story short, we picked up and sold everything we had here in the U.S. and moved to the U.K. It was, it was definitely the biggest personal and professional challenge. And we went over there and fell in love with, with the U.K., but it was a very different way of doing business over there. Culturally, economically, strategically, it was quite a different place, particularly being an American in a, in a, in a foreign country. And so I had to learn how to do business there. I had to learn how to interact with, with the folks there. I had to learn how things as simple as, you know, renting equipment and opening up bank accounts and establishing financial relationships worked. And then also had to learn how to interact professionally with many different types of corporations at many different levels. And it was, there were definitely some dark times. Uh, and there was, there was a time when the company was actually very close to going out of business. And we, we, we figured out some significantly uh, important changes that needed to be made. And we ultimately turned the business around and sold it for almost $600 million uh, wow. to State Street and uh, lived to fight another day. And it was wow. an exceptional experience. And spent yeah, no six doubt. years spent six years there when I had only been planned to be there for two years. You know, this is fascinating to me because uh, in my previous career, I used to travel a lot. I used to travel the world looking for very cool automotive products to import, uh, to brand and so forth. And uh, like you, I learned, you know, going to different countries and dealing with different people, different cultures, uh, not everybody does everything the same. And uh, one that stood out to me was going to Japan. And having meetings with people, and I, I had a Japanese sales manager who grew up in Japan, thank goodness, and he understood the culture. And I remember him one time saying, okay, this first meeting we're having with them today, we're not going to talk about business. We just talk about family. Well, I don't have time for that. I just want to know if they want to sell me some products. And uh, he's like, well, that's not the way they do business here. And so it was, it was a very, I had a lot of a patience to go, okay, we're just going to talk about family. So what, well, ask them about their family, tell them about your family and a lot, a lot, a lot. And then we're going to go have dinner that'll take about three hours and still don't talk about work. And then tomorrow we'll come back and we might start to talk a little bit about work. And it was just, why is this taking so long? But that's the way it was done. And if you didn't do it that way, they would be very offended and not do business with you. So well, you're, you're right. absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And, and I headed up. Uh, EMEA and Asia Pack out of London. I started, mm -hmm. I opened the office in London and then, well, I expanded the office in London. And then we ultimately uh, 
uh, expanded into into Western Europe, Africa, uh, and Asia. But what was interesting is you always said Asia Pac and Japan, and that, which was kind of an interesting kind of understanding for me because the perfect example of that is is I could fly pretty much anywhere in Asia and I get off the plane and my phone would work, but if I got off the plane in Japan, it wouldn't work. And it was basically the Japanese way of saying things are different here and you're going to have to do it our way. And I developed some of the most wonderful relationships with my Japanese uh, clients who became friends and, and still stay in contact to this day. But to your point, you know, you learn a lot and, and hopefully you take that forward into your life and, and, and leverage that. And, and, you know, look what you're doing today. You're spending time professionally getting to know people for a living. And you probably helped develop that technique and or or personality trait in characteristics in Japan. Well, part of it too, and I was made in Japan, so maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> I don't know. Little known fact about me, but uh, but I think you're right. And the fact that I interview people from all over the world, I do have to get used to different uh, concepts and ideas. And some of the questions I ask are difficult for people in certain cultures to answer. In other cultures, they're not. So yeah, it's all about listening well. Let's talk about your first really special vehicle. I know you've had some cool cars and you race a cool car, but let's talk about the first car in your life that had great meaning for you. Well, I've had a lot of cars. I've had a number of cars that were, were, were fun and great cars, but I think the first car that truly was special for me was my first race car that I bought, which was actually a GT car. So it was a race and a road car. And it was a 1957 AC Asica. The fun part about that is, is that when somebody would look at it, 99 times out of 100, they didn't know what it was. So I love that part about it. But, you know, they, I tell them what it is and they go, oh, and they say, that's really interesting. And, and I'm like, it's okay. I know you don't know what it is. And then I would explain what it is, particularly, you know, leveraging off the Shelby Cobra, or the AC Cobra rather. And the AC Cobra was the AC Ace, and this is the coupe version of the AC Ace. And then people kind of connected the dots. And it was an incredibly special car. It was actually owned by a gentleman in the UK first, and he sold it to uh, through auction to Bruce McCaw. The car had been converted to a GT race car to be campaigned in the Melimelia and other endurance rallies. And Bruce actually drove it, I believe, in the in the Colorado Grand. When I ultimately bought it, it was uh, it had been sitting for a while. I turned it basically started campaigning it in CSRG and, and HMSA vintage racing sessions here in the West, racing at Laguna Seca and Sears Point and Thunder Hill. So that was my first, my first entree into racing, but it was a GT car. So, you know, it had skinny tires and, and it had a, an inline six uh, AC uh, Bristol engine. So I got to know all about the differences between AC motors and Bristol motors and what it took to, to actually conserve energy and and hit your apexes and brake just right when you had an underpowered under torque skinny tire bias ply car but it was it was an unbelievable machine and it was everybody who saw it loved it and it was very heavily photographed and and I really really enjoyed racing it and it helped me become a much much better racer uh, as a result of it and the car had a fantastic history and ultimately I got to a point where I wanted to go faster and and speaking to my, you know, my race prep fellow, I, you know, we, he started talking about different things we could do to it. And, and I said, you know, I don't want to do unnatural things to the car to get it to do unnatural things. 
this is about as far as we can do it before it gets kind of silly. And so that's when I decided to move up to uh, Formula Atlantic, and the rest is history there. But the funny thing is I was actually looking for an early alpha. I was looking for a 56, 57 alpha spider to race. And I saw in the early days of bring a trailer where people just put put links to cars that were for sale around the country on different sites. This AC Asica was was actually for sale on eBay, and somebody put a link, and I saw it and fell in love with it, and 24 hours later, I bought it. You had it. Did yours have the 2-liter or the 2.6-liter engine? It was a 2-liter, 1970cc, okay. the Bristol engine, but it was a D, a D motor, so it was the highest horsepower. And I actually ended up having the engine rebuilt, so it had a whopping 143 horsepower in it. There you go. There you go. You know, that car, I always loved that car. Really lovely design. The, the, to me, the the design was kind of a bit inspired. I always thought of like the Far, Ferrari Barchetta. When you look at the front of that car and the, the eggshell grill and and just the delicateness and roundness of the car, I think they're they're just wonderful looking cars. Oh, I agree. Well, it's a Tejero design. And so you can see a lot of similarity there. And, and you know, it was it was in period with the DB2, and I and I used to go back and forth with Keith Martin, you know, from uh, Sports Car Market. Sports Car Market, yeah. You know, yeah. and how he put out his annual ratings of cars, and, and he would always rate the DB2 as higher than the Yasika. And I said, how do you justify that? It's definitely a prettier car. It's all alloy body car. It's faster. It's much rarer because there were just under 300 of them were made. And and he just said, well, it's an Aston Martin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, and so I was definitely a big fan. And, and it was the only uh, racing Asica in, in the United States. And so oh, it's, really? uh, wow. it's a pretty pretty neat car. You know, I think I – when did you sell it to Bruce? No, I got it. Oh, you got it from uh, Bruce, Bruce? No, Bruce bought it at auction, and then someone bought it from Bruce, and I bought it from that person. Ah, uh, Okay, I got so you there. Bruce is the one who brought it to the U.S. I see. Oh, he brought a lot of cool cars to the U.S., that's for sure. I spent a lot of time at VRM shooting a lot of the cars that they had there, so uh, <laughs> fantastic cars for sure. Well, how about Seller's Remorse? Is there a vehicle you've owned and let go that you wish you still had? Yeah, it, it definitely would have to be my 1960 Austin Healey. That was my first collector car, and it you know I taught my kids how to drive a stick in it. Uh, I drove it to Monterey weeks to Monterey week many many times. It was just dead reliable, beautiful. It was red with a you know, black uh, black vinyl interior, red piping, and and the best part about it was it was when I bought it, it had already been restored, so it was in great shape. And the the predecessor, the previous owner who had it. He fixed all the stuff that was hinky on it, you know, so he put a new wiring wiring harness on it and a couple other things. I ended up having the overdrive rebuilt, but after that, it was just a dream to drive. And I always, people always giving you a thumbs up and you, I could take it downtown and not worry about it. And somebody would always stop me and say that, you know, they had one back such and such a time and they wish they never sold it. And, uh, you know, I even had the privilege of driving Patty Hopkirk in it. You may you may know that he raced in Austin Healey uh, 106 back in the day as well. He he came out he came out here for a special event that we had at uh, at my car club, and and uh, I I got to take him for a ride in it up in the hills, and he he just loved it, and uh, yeah. it was it's a lot of fun. I wish I wish I had it back. Yep, absolutely. 
Well, let's talk about the San Francisco Auto Museum and this new project, this new career venture of yours. And what can we expect to see with what's happening there? Well, it's, it's a, a really exciting opportunity. About a year ago, Elisa Stevens, who's the president of the Academy of Art University, and her family also founded and owned, owns the Academy of Art University, uh, has a phenomenal car collection and of about 250 cars, the vast majority of them being pre-war. The collection was built as a result of the passion of, of Elisa's father, who was her predecessor in running the school, who, by the way, her grandfather founded in 1929. So this is the 90th year this year. Her dad was in love with cars, and he was also an artist, and he wanted to start a school of automotive design and uh, industrial design as as a as an extension of the university here in San Francisco. And so instead of having his students read about design and engineering and manufacturing techniques in a textbook, he thought it'd be much better to actually have a living, breathing classroom where the kids could come down and lay hands on these cars and see for themselves in real life what it was, what these these design design techniques and manufacturing techniques, painting styles and things like that could look like. And so he started to build up a collection. And uh, over a fairly short period of time, considering the size of the collection, managed to amass some of the most significant cars uh, in the world. And uh, heavily weighted, like I said, in pre-war, some uh, unbelievable Packards and Duesenbergs, B-16 Cadillacs, etc. And so Unfortunately, Mr. Stevens passed away a couple of years ago, and he'd always wanted to ultimately see that the collection was was loved by loved by as many people as possible. I sat down with with Elisa one day to talk to her at lunch to talk to her about a number of things having to do with the, the school, but also about the museum. And, and she mentioned to me that it was really a dream of hers to take this private collection. Uh, and actually turn it into a, a museum that would be open to the public. And so I was extremely excited about that idea. And Elisa and I had developed a, a great friendship over the last 10 years as a result of her bringing cars from the Academy of Art uh, to my show, the Hillsborough Concord. And so we got to know each other through that. And uh, And so fast forward. I joined the team at the Academy of Art University and for the last year have been putting the building blocks in place to ultimately open up the collection that currently is the Academy of Art University collection and turn it into the the actual San Francisco Auto Museum. We've been uh, curating the cars and the collection. You may have seen that we've, we've sold a number of cars and uh, in the last year, and basically thinning the herd, so to speak, and uh, selling our what we would call kind of our second or, or thirds, our doubles and triples of cars that we have, and keeping the best of the best, and then using some of that money to also go and, and buy cars for the collection, specifically focused and oriented around cars that are iconic in design. So we just actually just bought a 1963 split window Corvette coupe, you know, something like that. So. We're super excited about it. There's still a lot of work to be done, building websites and establishing a nonprofit foundation and all the things that you understand that goes into actually turning a just a collection into an action museum. And and we're we're super excited about it. And it will be the only automobile uh, museum 
in the greater Bay Area, or certainly in the San Francisco area. And um, hopefully this time next year, we'll be, uh, we'll be talking about what we're doing there. I'd love to have you back when everything is all set up. Now, how about your involvement with the upcoming Ironstone Concours? How have you gotten involved with that organization? Well, we've been a big supporter of Ironstone for, for a number of years. And our good friend, uh, Chris Bach, Wayne Craig, who is responsible for uh, the docents as well as the, the race cars up there. Wayne is a, is the chief docent from my Hillsborough Concours as well. And, and when I joined, the Academy Auto Collection, we had had a history of bringing cars to Ironstone for, for several years. Uh, and so I was really fortunate in that my first year when I went to Ironstone. Last year, we brought uh, our 1928 Soda Prashini, and we actually ended up taking uh, Best in Show. Yeah, so beautiful it, car. It, I love seeing it, that car. It's a pretty neat car, and it has a wonderful yeah. history. and. And uh, so it was a great kind of indoctrination for me because that was actually the first time I personally had been to Ironstone because previously I had an event that I attended every year that conflicted with it. So I was delighted to go. And, and this year we're bringing our 1935 Mercedes 500K, which is an exceptional car. And we're looking forward to, to showing it at Ironstone. But we're big supporters of the folks up there. And, and it's it's just a neat event. It's it's really, it, it's somewhat like, you know, modern, uh, Pebble in that, when you go to Ironstone, you're, you're not only going for the show, but you're going for the destination. Being up there in the beautiful gold country is just second to none. And, and, you know, you go up and you make a weekend of it. It's super fun. And they're great folks up there. And we love participating. Really? They really, really are. And this past week, I've had many people, the whole week's been dedicated to Ironstone. Uh, so I had Gail and Steve uh, on the show uh, Tuesday, I believe that was, and other people involved. It's September 28th. So go to the Website, ironstoneconcord.org, and if you can be in that area at that time and make a weekend of it, it's really fantastic. And you're the chairman of the Hillsborough Concord Elegance, which has the uh, privilege of being the longest continually running Concord in the world. Is that right? That's right. Wow. Well, How long has well, it been going a, on? Uh, we've been going on since 1956. We started in 1956. So it will wow. be our 65th year next year, next July. And yes, there are those who know Concord. There are Shows that started before us, uh, including Pebble Beach, but none have run continuously and um, for 65 straight years. And so we're uh, we're proud of it. Started out as, as a little car show here in this tiny town of Hillsboro to raise money for the local schools. And and uh, back in 2010, the the show was kind of struggling, and uh, I got together with a group of folks to. Um, take it over and created a nonprofit foundation and, and move the event from the local school fields just up the hill a little bit to a beautiful Crystal Springs golf course. And, and that's where it, where it resides now for the, and we, we've been putting it on for the last 10 years up at, on the 18th fairway there at Crystal Springs. And we really, uh, prided ourselves on turning it back around and making it a, a, a world class concourse again. And we're super excited about what goes on there. And uh, we, all of our net proceeds benefit uh, Autism Speaks and the Guardsmen and the Hillsborough Schools. And uh, it, it's a real great passion uh, of mine and, and for the town here in Hillsborough. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I'll make sure that I put links to all these uh, companies that Rob is involved with on his show notes page so you can check them all out. When is the next Hillsborough Concord d'Elegance taking place? Uh, July 12th, 2020. 
2020. There you go. You can plan ahead. All right, Rob, up next is the last lap. Before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. When you want proven performance, there's one brand that's been around since 1938. That's Edelbrock, building the finest American-made performance products for the street and track. Edelbrock's products are designed and dyno-proven to deliver maximum results. Edelbrock has thousands of made-in-the-USA performance products for all makes and models. From their new AVS2 carburetor and innovative ProFlow 4 EFI for your muscle car or truck. To superchargers for your daily driver and more, visit edelbrock.com to check out the latest products for your ride and when you're ready to check out enter cars yeah in the coupon code and get 10 percent off your order that's edelbrock automotive performance since 1938 you take care of your cars but who takes care of your investments tune-ups aren't just for engines updating your financial plan is important too your gps may take you from a to b but it won't help you on the road to financial freedom. For that, you need a good co-pilot and a very trusted advisor. Chris Kimball, CFP, is just the man for the job. He'll guide you down that road without driving you crazy. For over 25 years, Chris has helped people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. With a master's degree in financial services, he is eminently qualified, and he's a car guy too. Learn more at chrisvkimball.com. Or call 866-ON-A-PLAN. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member FINRA SIPC. CK Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah. And I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah! podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at carsyeah.com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah! website at carsyeah.com. All right, Rob, we are back and I have a bit of an introspective question for you. If you woke up tomorrow and you were a car parked on the lawn or in a garage or in a field, I don't know, depends on what kind of car you'd be, what would Rob be and why? You know, I I really struggled with this one because because uh, there's there's some certainly some obvious choices and then maybe not not necessarily obvious choices. But if I were to be a car, I, I would really probably be want to be something that would be unusual, rare, but reliable and somewhat you know handsome and, and good looking. And so I'll probably would say that uh, I'll go back to being my 1960 Austin Haley. Super reliable. You can learn from it. You can take it anywhere, do virtually anything with it. Very versatile. Uh, and yet, uh, you can be proud of it at the end of the day because it'll, it, it will always deliver on, uh, on what you asked it to deliver. Nicely how said. How trite was that? <laughs> very good. Very good. We are entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some quick blips of the Austin throttle. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Best advice I received, if, if I look at it from just one of the more challenging parts of the automotive world, and that's in the collector world, and that is there's always another car. You can, there's obviously there are some exceptions, but by and large, if you don't 
get the car that you wanted to get, there's always another one. And then combined with that, try to buy the best car that you can afford. So unless you're a masochist, buying that car that just needs a little bit of fixing up, it never just needs a little fixing up. Let someone no. else do that. Pay the money to have someone else have uh, have it done for you, and you'll you'll never regret it. Yeah, unless you love spending money. How would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years? A lot of my friends give me a hard time about all the different projects I get involved in. I mean, you've named a few. One of, I think, my personal habits that I really has really helped me a lot is that I am a big believer in making my problem everyone's problem. Now that sounds kind of negative. That sounds, <laughs> yeah. Let me let me watch your problems, Rob. <laughs> let me let me phrase that. What I mean is 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 I paint the picture of the problem that I'm trying to solve, and I've learned over time that it, it's a fool's errand to try to do or solve complex problems by yourself. It's 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 very very difficult. It's far easier and ultimately far more rewarding. If you can get together with a group of people that you trust, explain the challenge you're having, explain the problem you have, and ask them to help you solve it. It's remarkable how talented people can be, especially if they're given the opportunity to share their talent. Because you just never know what experiences somebody has had. You just don't. And so when I say make my problem everyone's problem, if I'm trying to solve something, I'll, I will reach out to a number of people and say, hey, here's what my problem is. How do we solve that? By and large, uh, just about every time you come up with a, a pretty pretty reasonable solution. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Do you have a resource that you think our listeners would enjoy? You know, I was thinking about that, and, and it really depends on the dimensions you're looking for. And for me, I would say something that's very simple that I use just to kind of keep a feel for the market and what's going on. I've become a huge fan of Bring a Trailer. <laughs> I know that's going to sound funny. And I'm not pitching Bring a Trailer. But I love I love what that, that website has become. And I love what I believe it's starting to become more of. And that is a real information resource for for pricing, for what the market's doing, for what people are looking to get rid of, for what people are looking to acquire. You know, someone who runs a museum and is also a personal collector I get some incredible insights uh, out of that daily, little daily email I get from them. Now, there's a bazillion other websites I look at, but, but you know, if you just want to encapsulate something that really kind of allows me to get a good feeling for tapping into what's going on in the market, uh, I look at Bring a Trailer every day. Yeah, Randy Nonnenberg was a guest here on the show very early on. I'd like to get him back. Uh, in fact, I am going to have him back very soon uh, because the last time he was on, he was just dreaming about having an auction site on Bring a Trailer. And of course, we all know that's come to fruition. If I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would it be? Yeah, I, this, I kind of split this one. And it, uh, unfortunately, neither one of them are alive. But I would love to have a drink or, in, in this case, with both these guys, probably a couple of drinks with Carol Shelby or, uh, or Paul Newman. I look at both of those and they're very different personalities. But at the same time, they're self-made men who both started out in one dimension of their life and then really had a quite a significant pivot and turned turned their lives in a completely different direction 
wholly focused on the automotive industry and both are exceptionally successful racing drivers, uh, were really interesting characters, um, were significant philanthropists, uh, and, and one was a serial, uh, serial monogamous in Carol Shelby, I think setting the record for having the most wives in a, in a short period of time. Um, but I just think that they would be unbelievable to sit around a table with and, and, and listen, just listen to the stories that they could tell about their lives. That would be something. Uh, how about a book? Is there a book you'd like to share with our listeners that you enjoyed reading? Sure. And this one I'm actually still reading. It was, uh, I was told about the book by a, a very close friend and mentor of mine. And I'm 55 years old and I like to believe I've got a lot of, still got a lot of excess capacity and a, and a lot of laps to still run. But I think the, this book is really doing an amazing job at helping me figure out how to continue to get exceptional results. And it's called The One Thing. You've probably heard about it. Uh, it's written by a fellow named Gary Keller. And it's really helping me under, better understand how I work and how I can leverage my strengths. And it's this kind of notion of addition by subtraction. In other words, as I've, again, mentioned before, I get involved in a lot of things. And I am blessed with a, a decent capacity for keeping a lot of dishes spinning or a lot of balls in the air. But I'm going to run out of airspeed, altitude, and ideas one of these days with that. And and I need to be able to start focusing on really what are the what are the true core elements of my personality and, and characteristics that I can leverage to focus and, and continue to try and drive exceptional results. And and even boiling it down to that, you know, kind of that one thing. I'm still reading it, so I haven't gotten to the punchline yet, but I, I just love it. I think it's a, a, a really interesting way to look at things, and, and it's, I think it's perfect timing uh, for me, and I'm looking forward to, to finishing. Now, I'll let you know how it goes. The One Thing by Gary Keller. All right, Rob, we are up to the checkered flag, and this last question could be a bit of a doozy. I'm going to buy you any cool collector car on the planet today, but you're going to have to live by my rules before I write the check. The first rule is you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other toys with. The second rule is you have to drive it. No garage queens allowed here on Cars, yeah? And the third rule is it is the only one collector vehicle you can have in your garage. So what can I buy you? Well, you know there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in there, right? So, <laughs> Of course. I, you, I'm, which, uh, what interview am I? 1,300? You were 1,384. I've bought a lot of cars. I'd love to know of the 1,383 people before me, how many people said, you know, a 250 GTO? Oh, gosh. I think I bought everyone that exists around 22, 24 cars. So they're all taken. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm completely enamored with a 250 GTO, but I think I would probably push comes to shove. I would I would take the modern version of it, and that's the McLaren F1. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think the McLaren F1 is is what the 250 GTO uh, was to that era, and I, yeah. I'm the both. Although I, I'm not allowed to sell it, uh, the values will certainly uh, continue to go up, and you're you're in that club, right? Yeah, definitely. More, <laughs> yeah, but, but more importantly. It's, you know, it's an unbelievable machine to drive, and even though it's it's twenty what five years old, it's still literally uh, there's nothing like it. 
And I, and it is, there's nothing like it to drive. I don't think there'll be anything like it to drive for a long time. If I spent the next 50 years having one in my garage, I would be absolutely delighted. Uh, no kidding. Yeah. Nice choice. McLaren F1. Rob, you've taken us on a great ride today. I knew this would be fun. I want to thank you for sharing your journey. I'll let our listeners know I got to meet Rob uh, down in uh, Pebble Beach, Carmel, Monterey during Car Week back in August. Seems like we ran into each other every single day, everywhere we went uh, from the uh, the the show on uh, the Concours on the Avenue to the Mission uh, Classic to uh, the auctions to Pebble Beach to... Uh, the racetrack. I mean, it's like everywhere I went, Rob was there. So I thought that was pretty cool that I got to meet you beforehand. It was really good to get to know you better. Thanks again for the ride you've taken us today. Could you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off into the sunset in that McLaren F1? <laughs> well, I was torn when you asked me about my favorite mantra and kind of leadership thing, but I'll, I'll take one that I got from my father and I've given it to my kids and anybody who will listen, particularly if they're not feeling particularly great. And that notion is that every day is a great day. Just some days are better than others. Absolutely. Nicely said. And I'll remind our listeners, if you want to find out about any of these organizations and events we've talked about today, just go to carsyow.com, type in Rob Fisher, they'll all pop up. Of course, academyautomuseum.org is where the San Francisco Auto Museum website lives, ironstoneconcord.org. You've got to attend this event if you've never been to it. It's absolutely spectacular. And, of course, hillsboroughconcord.org for this wonderful event that's taking place next summer. You can learn everything on Rob's show notes page. Rob, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for sharing your experiences with me. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you at the Ironstone Concord. Real pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hey, Mark Green here from Cars Yeah. Did you know you can now see me? on the Cars Yeah! TV show. It's a weekly visit to some of my past Cars Yeah! podcast guests, and I take you along for the ride. You go behind the garage door and into their lives, their businesses, and you get to see what makes them successful. With tens of millions of viewers, Cars Yeah! TV is making its mark. Cars Yeah! TV is available on MAV TV and Lucas Oil Racing TV. You'll find MAV TV on Direct TV, Fubo TV, Fios by Verizon, or you can stream it through Lucas Oil Racing Television online. And they said I only had a face for podcasting. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!